on Off The Ball with Sky watch every live Premier League game this season on Sky Sports BT Sport and Premier Sports I'm prepared to end it and I can't well, do it then do it then what about your start to the game I was, it wasn't bad was it <laughs> why should an honest answer be a mistake how can a modern day manager not have a mobile phone why should he <gasps> yeah here we go again football show Back with you after nine o'clock. We have another season ahead. We've got a stacked football show this evening. So Graham Hunter will talk to us uh, very shortly about Barcelona and their financial dexterity. We are uh, joined before all that, though, by Jonathan Wilson, who was with us on the line, because the Premier League season is ready to crank into gear once again from Friday evening. Crystal Palace will get things underway against Arsenal at eight. And then on we go. It's just like any other weekend. We'll have Saturday, Liverpool away to Fulham, half past 12. Everton against Chelsea will be the half past five games. Sunday, we'll have Man United against Brighton. Man City will be away to West Ham. And Jonathan Wilson, once again, uh, lives will be ruled by kickoff times. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yes, the uh, the respite of the summer is coming to an end. And yeah, um, yeah, it's been very noticeable this week how my, my workload has, has already gone through the roof. Mm. So uh, we'll be talking to you, by the way, in the next couple of weeks. I started Two Brothers about Jack and Bobby Charlton, uh, your new book. And I have to say, first few pages did not make me want to work in a mine. I'll say that much. So uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to chatting to you about the book. I mean, it's it's uh, fascinating subjects and when they're brothers and uh, the architecture around them should be a really, really great read. So I'm looking forward to that. So in the meantime... Uh, let's talk Premier League. We might start with Man City. Uh, the two uh, thoroughbreds being Man City and Liverpool in this title race. There is, you know, Man City are at an interesting precipice in many ways. They are looking to win a fifth title in six years. And that would really consign these years to era of total dominance, despite Liverpool's valiant efforts to keep pace. Yeah, it would. I mean, uh, it's only happened once before uh, in English history that a team has won five out of six, which is... Manchester United around the turn of millennium, um, and uh, I, I think the, you know the, the the irony of that is that uh, it's not really what City are targeting. They they really want to win the the Champions League, and the league sort of seems to come along each season almost as a as a consolation. Now that the the, the they have this series of traumatic defeats in the Champions League, and I'm pretty sure that's that's the reason why they've they've taken what I, what I think is a fairly substantial gamble with their forward line, uh, changing how they play. And I think uh, we did wonder whether Holland would be a great fit for them. Uh, you know, he's obviously a brilliant forward. They're obviously a brilliant team. Do the two go together? Well, what we saw on Saturday is has only magnified the, those doubts. So perhaps this season there is, there is an opportunity for others there. I didn't see the game on Saturday and uh, I'll watch it back at some stage this week, but I've been really struck by the number of observers who did watch the game talking about the... Haaland relationship with the rest of his team. To read from your piece, for instance, over the weekend in the on the Guardian website, Haaland seemed to be playing a different game to his teammates. Again and again, he set off on surges behind the Liverpool back four and again and again, they went sideways, reluctant to risk possession. That sounds like a pretty frustrating afternoon. Yeah, and I, I think you know, in the immediate aftermath, there was a lot of criticism of him and he didn't look quite as fit as maybe you'd hope he would be. Which I guess maybe to do with his his preseason, uh, he missed those those two very good chances. Uh, you know the one in the last minute when the, the game was already over when you know, he hit the bar from what six seven yards. I, I think that's probably less worrying than that seeming total disconnect with with the midfield. And, and it was it was a very odd game to watch because 
again and again, you saw the ball come to well, De Bruyne particularly, who seems like such a switched on intelligent player, who's so, so central to how City play. And you think just a simple forward pass and Haaland's in. He's, you know, he's, he's found space between Matip and, and, and Van Dijk. He's, you know, he's got the run on them. Um, and, you know, he did have a great physical battle with Van Dijk and didn't always come out on top in that. But he was making those runs mm. and the ball wasn't being played. Now, I guess to an extent, that's why he's been bought, that uh, there's a sense perhaps that in the very, very uh, biggest games against the very, very best opposition, City maybe aren't quite as ruthless as they ought to be. I mean, yeah, they've been the top scorer for each of the last five seasons. So they, they don't have a problem scoring goals in the Premier League. But the fact they keep slipping up in these big European games, I, I, I presume the logic of bringing him in and, and offloading Sterling and Jesus is is to try and just make them, I, I don't want to say predictable, uh, but just to break up those patterns that I think in big games, a very, very good opponents can sort of feel, yeah, we know what they're doing, mm. that's okay. Whereas Holland would give them that extra option. But as yet, that, that isn't gelling. I, I, and you know, I, I think... I always sort of think that the very best teams, the most interesting teams, are those where there is a little bit of friction. Um, that the friction sort of makes them more creative. It, it gives them extra stimulus. And maybe everything's been a little bit too well lubricated for City. Um, and, and but but yeah, but in, in introducing that that, mm. that friction, it is obviously a gamble. Uh, and, and the evidence of Saturday is that that you know it's a pretty big gamble. And Jonathan, did Haaland's body language speak of a man frustrated with the uh, uh, continual ignoring of his runs? Well, I mean, it did, but I think that's natural. Yeah. You know, I, I think, yeah, naturally, when you've made that run, you turn to, to whoever could have played that pass and you sort of look at him and you shrug and you sort of say, come on, I was, yeah, you could have released me there. Uh, but I, I think it, it is a difficult transition for, for City to make because they're so used to, to, to trying to control games through possession. And you know, it's like that Guardiola line, um, even I mean, it was back in his Barcelona days, he said it, but I think it remains true that he thinks it takes 15 passes to set up the play as he wants it set up. Mm. Yeah, he's somebody who's, who's instinctively um, cautious about very rapid counterattacks and transition and, and introducing an element of chaos to the game, which Klopp clearly is, is, is very happy to, to, to do. In fact, yeah, he tries to create the chaos. And I, I think it will take a, a, you know, a change on their part. And the, the, the time when Guardiola has tried to do that before was bring Ibrahimovic to, to Barcelona in 2009. Ibrahimovic, a player that Haaland consciously has modelled himself on, um, who shares certain characteristics in terms of their, their, you know, their, their, their size, their, their capacity to physically overpower opponents. Um, and it, that didn't work out. And, and actually, and again, you know, it's, it's pre-season where we're, we're desperately looking for, hmm. for clues to what's going to happen. But there was that very strange thing on Twitter last week, I don't know if you saw it, of Holland going into Marks and Spencer and uh, saying, what am I going to buy? Then a few minutes later, there's a photograph of him buying some Percy pigs. Now, I, I, maybe that's just sort of, he's bought some sweets, so what? But it, it felt slightly pointed, as if he's sort of rebelling against the the very controlling culture of City that monitors diet and you know, body fat and, and everything else. It did well because he put in brackets at the end, "Don't tell anyone." Well, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. So the, the tone of it was very much, "Look at me being naughty. Look at me rebelling." I mean, if that is the sum of his rebellion, who cares? Yeah. Um, 
but but yeah, it, it, it's I think it's you know that's one of those things that you know in, in three months we'll have forgotten all about it, or we'll be going about ah oh, look the signs were there, mm. I, and it's you know it's it's hard to tell it at this point. Mm. I mean, it's hard to imagine in two three months time that De Bruyne and Haaland haven't struck up a fairly outrageous relationship and I'd almost you know if, if you were to say to me now well you can choose to guess that De Bruyne will set Haaland up for uh, 10 goals over or under with first time passes more than 15-20 metres I'd be inclined to say probably over because De Bruyne yeah. will start to realise I mean anyone who's watched a compilation of Haaland goals one of his many gifts but certainly one of them is an ability to make these incredible runs that actually just seemed to make um, a midfielder's life very, very easy. You know, he has this innate ability to pick the right line and the right angle and the right speed. And it's like, well, just give it to me and I'll, I'll stick it in the net. So it's really hard to imagine uh, De Bruyne ignoring those runs for very long, unless the express wishes of his manager are to ignore those runs, in which case it's a very strange signing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think all of that is true. The, 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 one, the one thing I would slightly caveat that with is they won't play many teams who play as high against them as Liverpool do and leave that space for them to run into. Mm. And I think that that was the bigger question I had about him. And that was why I thought, yeah, he's been signed for, for big games. But when they play against... Um, uh, who's a good example of this? Uh, a team who sits very, very deep against them. I mean, Manchester United, the way they were at the beginning of last... Or two seasons ago when, when Solskjaer was sort of threatening to, to actually do something with that side before Ronaldo arrived and messed everything up. But a team that sits very, very deep against him where there's no space for, for Holland to run into, you're then looking at him saying, what does he actually bring? Because for his size, he's not he's not that good in the air. Um, and, and anyway, City's game is absolutely not to just sling crosses in. And, and maybe, you know, it's maybe it's useful for him to have that option. I think you know, the, the, the game away against PSG in the group stage of Champions League last season, City had loads of ball, mm. sort of, I don't know, 30 yards to 50 yards from a PSG goal. PSG sat really deep. And you just sort of thought, just slinging across. And then you sort of think, no, actually, slinging it across to Phil Foden maybe isn't isn't the right thing to do. Or Raheem Sterling ended up playing centre-forward. Whereas Haaland, you do have that option. But, you know, he's he's not Niall Quinn. He's not somebody who you would back to beat the vast majority of centre-backs the majority of times. He's good in the air, but not brilliant in the air. And anyway, I, as I say, I, I think that's really not City's game. Mm. I think I think the the value he adds is is those runs, but I think those will only really occur either against teams who are chasing the game because they're behind, or because yeah, they're better sides and they they they, they, they do push out. Yeah, I guess the other goal he's quite adept at is ball pulled back to him and finishes, and he'll score plenty yeah. of them. So that'll work. To, a last one on Highland before. And, and, and sorry, yeah, and that, that was the goal he scored against Bayern. Yes, for twelve minutes into his debut in, in the friendly, and I think it's significant. It was Grealish who set that up because Grealish is the other one who, sort of last season, you thought, you know, he he's got that slightly anarchic presence to him, that anarchic personality, which can add something to City that they perhaps don't have. But he seemed, I mean, that interview you gave on the final day of last season, I thought was incredibly yeah, revealing, yeah. despite Michael Richards' attempts to to uh, derail <laughs> it. Um, but talking about how he, you know, he felt very anxious and was always the second guessing himself. But if if he and Holland can strike up a partnership, then, then I think that could be, I mean, it's both very dangerous for Guardiola because they are yes. you know, slightly anarchic, but it, it's it's potentially very exciting for City. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I I can't believe I didn't rush to check if Jack Grealish retweeted the Percy Pig tweet of Haaland because that would <laughs> yeah. be uh, very worrying indeed for Guardiola. Well, I, I think there are 
questions about Grealish's commitment to the absolutely rigorous diet, diet regime of City. I mean, I'm not saying he uh, he's damaging himself, but I, I think he, he he perhaps finds that difficult to stick to the absolute letter of the diet. Mm. So the one last uh, point I wanted to make about Haaland or ask your thoughts on... Oh, yes. Uh, to what extent will uh, a Guardiola team require Haaland, do you think, to be involved in build-up play, to come short and take a touch and move it on and rotate and come back and, and, and be in general circulation and available for the ball at all times? Or can he almost uh, stand there, Niall Quinn-esque, with his hands on his hips for a little while? I mean, I'd be amazed if Guardiola let him do that. Uh, I, I mean, I think he will have to involve himself. He will have to pull wide. He will have to drop deep. I, I, I guess the the one thing you'd say is, even by standing there, he manipulates the opposition because... Yeah you will be reluctant to push up against him. And that maybe just creates a little bit more space for City's midfield. So I, I, th- I think there is a, a semi-argument that by not moving, he he, he creates problems for the opponents and mm. creates space. But I, I think yeah, there will have to be some movement there. And that, that is an aspect of his game that, that he will have to improve and he will have to learn. And, and certainly, you know, he'll be expected to, to, to press and close down passing lanes and close down opposition centre-backs when they have a ball. Jonathan, from Liverpool's perspective, if this year is the chance for City to go five and six and really cement their dominance, for Liverpool, again, it has that defining feel because instead of five and six, four and two feels much more a reflection, I think, of this very competitive uh, rivalry that we've enjoyed. So it is a really important season for Klopp and this Liverpool side and how we uh, remember them even if that's a touch reductive just to go on the numbers. So Man is gone and Nunes is in and uh, uh, pre-season woes behind him. Uh, exaggerated, I'm sure, and, and, and he celebrated accordingly. And there's just a real sense Liverpool are locked in, ready to go again, and it'll be City-Liverpool all the way. Is, is there anything about Liverpool uh, this summer to cause you great concern that they won't be there or thereabouts? Um... No, not great concern. I, I, I think the one question that, that sort of cropped up about them last season, uh, well, I, I guess it's it's two related questions. So one was, I, I think, against the very best side. So if you look at their, their six games against the other three teams to qualify for Champions League, so, so City, Chelsea and Tottenham, they drew all of those in the league. They played Chelsea twice in cup finals, drew both those and won on penalties. And then, you know, if, you, if you're really looking... To make the point, you could say the Real Madrid, the the Champions League final. Yeah, they perhaps against the very best sides lack a little bit of guile, and I think that's why um, Klopp was so keen for Thiago to play in that final, despite fairly evidently not being fully fit. So that that that's the one slight issue, and and you know, that that has not been resolved. But I think that was magnified by Salah's loss of form in the the the, the latter half of the season. And I, I, I guess that could have been fatigue because yeah, he played at the Cup of Nations, and obviously the fact that Egypt lost in the final of that. Then, then he had the World Cup playoff when Egypt lost to to, to Senegal, uh, as they had done in the Cup of Nations final. You, you can see that there's there's a very clear external factor there that might be leading him to sort of just be slightly off colour and slightly fatigued. Mm. I also wonder whether the arrival of Diaz and Mane moving into the middle just slightly affected the dynamic of that front three. So he wasn't quite getting the service that he would get from, from Peak Firmino or even from, from Jota. So I, I wonder whether, you know, if, if he can strike up a, uh, I don't want to say a better relationship because that implies a criticism of Mano, which I don't really mean, mm. but a, a, a relationship with Nunez, which is more profitable for him, uh, you know, that, that, that 
could give Liverpool that, that, that little bit of guile that maybe they did just lack post-Christmas yeah. last season. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a very fair point. And the, the Spurs game at home in particular, where it really fell from, from quite a distance out in that game, like they had run out of ideas and they weren't going to break Spurs down, definitely jumps to mind. And uh, Madrid, for sure, at a certain point in that game, again, not a million, you know, a fair distance from the full-time whistle, you got a real sense they weren't going to break Madrid down. That, w- that was definitely there. And yet the other side of that coin is you think of the chances they did create against Madrid, for instance, and if they had just taken one of them, it's a different proposition. And we are talking about the finest of fine margins. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you'd say, I mean, you know, those six league games, uh, I think four of them were 2-2 and two of them won one. So they scored 10 goals in those six games, mm. which, yeah, you, you'd think would be enough to win two or three of them. Um, the, the set against that, the Madrid game, the two finals against Chelsea, uh, so yeah, two nil nils and a one nil defeat, mm. but but yeah, all of those games they did create chances, they just didn't take them, and that again maybe is is reflective of, of Salah being slightly off colour, and of course the for for most teams the World Cup uh, coming in November December is likely to to yeah you know, to, to to wear their players out more. Well, Liverpool, the fact that Salah's not going to be at the World Cup um, is, is is beneficial to them. Yeah. Yeah, he, he can have a month off and he can come back fully refreshed. The exact opposite of last season when he was coming the second half of the season with, with a bit of bit of fatigue. One uh, point on the two managers. Uh, so Klopp signed a contract extension. Guardiola's future is, is less clear. Do they both look to you as full of energy and enthusiasm and ready for road? Because um, traditionally, you know, well, I guess Guardiola has taken his, um, his sabbaticals from time to time and, and, and Klopp, you feel, is an emotional type who needs to be... Uh, fully invested in the project and, and he looks to be at the moment but your, your your sense of kind of the energy levels and enthusiasm of Klopp and Guardiola this year Yeah I, mean, I think it was definitely a danger towards yeah after that Champions League final you did wonder about Klopp but but then to be honest even by that that parade they had he, you know, he seemed to have his life back That and that's yeah that's that's understandable you know, the disappointment of having come clo- so close to winning four and even, I think particularly the way that final day of the league season went that they, they got they got much closer than I have to say I I thought was ever likely. I just assumed City would would cruise the victory over Villa and it wouldn't be an issue. But the fact it was almost within their grasp, uh, I, I think to 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 have that and then Champions League final within the space of a week, I, th- I think inevitably that that sort of uh, wears you down a bit. But yeah, the energy seemed to have come back by the by the parade and yeah, last season was a was a brilliant season and. and yeah, from from the evidence of the Community Shield, he he seemed fully fully energised, and uh, and why wouldn't he be? Because yeah, Liverpool played played extremely well. Guardiola, I think he's much harder to read. There's mm. always that slight tetchiness about him. Um, I, I I think I mean I don't know how much difference it makes that he brought in uh, Juan Malio, who who you know, had been his his great mentor um, at the end of his playing career and beginning of his managerial career. Yeah, had him there as assistant. Yeah, he's now left, um, and they brought in um, Maresca, you know, the former West Brom midfielder. Um, I, I don't know if that's significant or not, but mm. I, you know, I guess if you've got that sort of elder statesman figure there, who you absolutely trust. That's a, a protection that, that, that maybe isn't there anymore. Um, so I don't know. I, I, he he's somebody. I mean, both of them give so much of themselves. Yeah. That you, you almost you feel with both of them they're, they're both pretty close to to, to, to breaking all the time <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know Klopp's been at Liverpool for 
what's uh, this is his eighth season is it now yeah um so he's never done a stint like this um I forgot about the parade. I mean, you may, like that was just the most insane thing. These parades are not meant to be joyous affairs. And he does have a magic touch. He did seem to turn the thing into this life affirming. We're all in this together. We're a great team. This is to be enjoyed kind of moment as opposed to slumped at the front of the bus. It's, a, yeah, it's an amazing I think, quality. I think that's that, that's right. I mean, they won two domestic cups. They, they got to a Champions League final. They came within sort of 20 minutes and two goals of winning the league. And that's a great season. If you don't celebrate that, then you're not going to celebrate very much in life. <laughs> so I, I, I think I think he got the. Cause I, yeah, I I, I was sort of very skeptical about it. And I, I'm yeah, I'm a sort of a generally sort of parade skeptic. Um, but I remember when you know when Sunderland lost in the '92 Cup final, even though the parade literally went 200 yards from my door, I didn't bother to go and see it because I, I sort of thought, no, we've lost. But when I actually saw the Liverpool parade and you sort of saw the mood of the play, you saw the mood of the fans. So I thought, yeah, this, this is, this is a good and necessary thing. Mm. And in terms of the pressing the reset button uh, and sort of saying to people, don't be disappointed. This is a brilliant season. We came really, really close. It's, it's, it's the right thing to do. And, and um, I, I think he probably needed that. And I, th- I think the players probably needed that. And I think the fans needed it. And, and, and what that did was to clear the hangover Immediately, yeah, and it was a bit. Is it a bit? I feel like I'm talking about Niall Quinn a lot now, but it was a bit. It's a bit similar to after Sunderland had lost on penalties in the playoff final in '98 after that four-four draw against Charlton, and Niall Quinn's post-match interview was immediately, forget this. Yeah, you know, we know we're the best team in this division. Let's win it next season, and that you sort of felt lifted the mood. And I think this was a similar process of kind of. Um, making sure that the defeat didn't didn't become something yeah. that, 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 that dragged the team down, the fans down in the longer term. Jordan Henderson at the time said it was one of the greatest days of his life. The parade. You know, he's a lot of good days. You know, this is the genius of Klopp. You're now two Niall Quinn mentions and two Sunderland mentions <laughs> into this conversation. The only real debate here, the side bet is who's going to come out on top there, Sunderland or Quinn, and <laughs> remains to be seen. Um, so who comes out on top between Liverpool and Man City this season, Jonathan, is the, the burning question. I mean, I think probably City, but um, maybe 55-45. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, underlying all, all all these discussions is City are much, much richer. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's important, not just in the players they can afford um, and the facilities, uh, but they've been able to afford Guardiola, who's one of the greatest coaches of all time, as as Klopp is. But it's it's an incredible achievement of Liverpool just to keep this close. With a you know they spent uh, something like four hundred million pounds less in transfer fees net over the last six seasons, so to just just to stay on their coattails and to be a regular challenger and to have you know in, in terms of head to head record between Klopp and Guardiola, Klopp's is better, um, which you know, nobody else can say over any period of time. So yeah, the, the um, I, yeah I, I don't I'd, I'd be surprised if City ran away with it, and I think there's a potential. That the World Cup could could blow City up, and and the the Holland situation could blow City up, um, but but I, I think they, they yeah they, they they are still just about favourites. Yeah. Okay. I think um, that is the general sense. All right. I mean, it is going to be fascinating to see what a World Cup in the middle of a season does. In, in some ways, it should have been the first question I asked you because it's just such an unprecedented uh, aspect to this season. And uh, who like what are your overarching 
uh, thoughts on it? Will it, will it just be a case of recovery and, and, and fitness or I guess emotion comes into the whole thing as well and who goes deep in a World Cup and who doesn't and who wins and who uh, has heartbreak and all of these intangibles and injuries will happen and uh, it's hard to know what bearing it's going to have I think until we see the bearing that it has it, 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 it'll be quite specific and unpredictable I think the, 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 the impact that the World Cup has yeah, I, th- I think that's true, and and um, it's not just it's coming in the middle of a season. It's it's that you know, we've never had a major tournament coming. What is it, I think it's eight days between the final Premier League game and the first yeah, game of the it's World insane. Cup. So I mean that's going to have an impact on the World Cup as well. I mean how can you prepare? Mm. So th- I think those that first round of group games at the World Cup. I mean actually you saw that at the Cup of Nations. Um, first round of group games at the Cup of Nations were pretty universally dire. Uh, there was barely any goals scored. And a couple of quite weird results. Um, and I, I think you could see that at the World Cup. And then equally coming back, you know, the, the World Cup final is is, what, is it December the 19th, a week before Christmas. Yeah. And, and we're, we're back playing on Boxing Day. And so those Christmas fixtures are already a sort of grueling test. I know that you haven't got that, that game between Boxing Day and New Year. But still, I, I think those Boxing Day fixtures, there could be some very weird stuff happens there. Mm, mm. Or it may be that every manager just shuts things down and you get a series of really boring games. Mm, remains to be seen. We're going to take a very short uh, ad break. Jonathan Wilson is staying with us. So they're the top two, best of the rest, I suppose, up for discussion uh, next in just one moment. Back with Jonathan in a second. Football on Off The Ball With Sky Get all the football you love in one place Across Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports Have you subscribed to the OTB Football Podcast? You think that there's a good chance I suspect that Antonio Conte is the man Tottenham finish second Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream Wherever you get your podcasts And download the OTB Sports app Football on Off The Ball With Sky Watch over 400 games this season From the Premier League, WSL Scottish Premiership and EFL Live on Sky Sports You're welcome back We're looking ahead to the Premier League Which gets underway on Friday Jonathan Wilson, journalist and author is with us His new book, uh, Two Brothers Charts the lives of Jack and Bobby Charlton It's available now We'll be chatting to him about it on the show In due course But in the meantime We are looking ahead to the Premier League season We've Talked Man City and Liverpool in the main for obvious reasons. And then, of course, there are the rest. Uh, Jonathan trying to close the gap. To what extent do you anticipate the rest, whoever may be front of that pecking order, I don't know. But to what extent do you think they are closing the gap or, pre- or prepared to close the gap on Liverpool and City this season? Well, um, I think Chelsea probably are further away than they were last season. I think the other three of the top six are probably slightly closer. I think the gap is still pretty profound. I'd be amazed if if anybody... I, mean, I think it'd be... Would it be amazed? No. I think it, it would be a, a pretty big surprise if anybody other than City or Liverpool won the title. Yeah. Uh, Chelsea, uh, I think last season, perhaps we overestimated them at the start of the season that we we sort of got suckered into thinking Lukaku was the solution to their, their goal-scoring problems. But, you know, we'd seen them have a very, very good run in the Champions League. And there was that day, uh, that day against Arsenal where he bullied them and uh, Sky were ebullient in their uh, praise of Lukaku and he really did look like a changed man ready to yeah. come back and take over the league. Yeah, but, and it, then in retrospect you think, ah, oh, yeah, but then Ivan Tony bullied Arsenal as well. Bullying Arsenal <laughs> is quite easy to do if you have a big centre-forward. Um, maybe less so towards the end of the season. Um, yes, uh, 
Uh, but then, yeah, the, the I mean, I guess it's a result of sanctions, but um, Chelsea don't look in a strong position now as they did mm. did last season. Uh, obviously, Lukaku's gone. I don't think that forward line is anywhere near as good as we thought it was. Ziyech hasn't really worked out. You know, he plays and fits and starts. Havertz is fine, hasn't really kicked on. Werner still doesn't score goals and, yeah. and clearly Chelsea's trying to offload him. Because these ongoing rumours, I mean, I, I, you know, the stories were there again today that, that Bowley's very keen to get Ronaldo in and Tuchel's saying no. Um, I mean, I think Ronaldo arriving there would be an absolute disaster for Chelsea, but I can also see why Bowley, as somebody he perhaps doesn't quite understand football, thinks, mm. well, he'd be brilliant from a marketing point of view. He's one of the best handful of players ever. Um, why would we not want him? Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, I, I mean, I, I can just imagine Tuchel and the drive home from work having to have these conversations with Bowley that why Ronaldo would be a bad idea. And uh, look, Penny, you know, you, you, you'd pay a lot of money to eavesdrop and him talking to friends about the situation. He did publicly, Tuchel, send a very cautious note about this season. And, you know, Sterling and Kubali aside said, we need more quality, we need more players to, to really challenge. I was going to say to you that ordinarily, if Tuchel were struggling by Christmas, well, I know what would happen under Abramovich and it would be, thank you, Thomas, and we'll see you again down the line. How trigger happy do we think Chelsea are going to be with their managers is an interesting question. I mean, the, yeah, the truth is we don't know, but it, it would be yeah, it'd be a height of folly to, to, to put him under any pressure because... The, yeah, the point is under Abramovich, they wouldn't only have made the signings they made. Yeah, Marina Granovskaya was was very very good at getting transfers over the line. Bowley, yeah, having seen her leave, seen Petr Cech leave, is, is ended up having to be the sporting director, and he's a man with no experience in football. And to to be honest, yeah, Chelsea keep on getting gazumped by Barcelona, who have no money. So, mm. well, you know. It, I think any any sporting director, no matter how experienced, will be sort of sitting there scratching their head thinking, how can this club that's 1.3 billion euros in debt that can't register players, how do they keep spending more than us? Mm. It doesn't make any sense. Mm. So it's a bit of misfortune, I think a bit of naivety on Bowley's part and, and, and partly just circumstances. But the fact that Chelsea, I mean, would they have lost Rudiger had they not had the sanction, had they been able to offer him the, the, the contract? Possibly, but, but possibly not. Um Christensen probably would have gone, asked for the uh, may have gone, may have stayed next year, may still end, end up staying next year because uh, yeah, he hasn't signed anything with Barcelona yet. Uh, but that's left them very, very short at the back. Uh, Kudabali is, you know, is, uh, fills one of those holes, but I think they really could do with an, another centre-back. And then they've got this problem in midfield that um, Jorginho and Kante both got one year left in the contracts now, both the wrong side of 30. You probably want to move on at least one of them. And yet, there doesn't seem to have been any movement to do that. And unless this, you know, unless they do somehow hijack Manchester United's deal for Frankie De Jong, and he can be persuaded to leave Barcelona and can sort out his deferred wages, um, but yeah, there doesn't seem to be any effort to sign um, yeah, another holding midfielder. It looks like they might be able to get Cucurella, uh, which I guess is is good for the squad depth because you know he puts pressure on Chilwell, can cover Fries James on the right as well. Um, but I, I still think the two or three pretty major players short of a, of a proper title challenge. Mm. Uh, Spurs and Arsenal, we'll come back to in a second. They're making steady progress, it would seem, over the summer. Manchester United are still very unresolved. We have a new manager in the league. We have the De Jong situation very much unresolved. We have the Ronaldo situation very much unresolved. They are all 
big question marks going into this season. So Ten Hag, De Jong, Ronaldo, uh, those three will go a long way towards deciding the next couple of months. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see how Ronaldo could possibly play for them again. I mean, that would be such an admission of defeat uh, from the club. I know Ten Hag keeps saying, oh, no, I'm happy to work with him. But surely that's just being being diplomatic. I mean, there's, there's no way Ronaldo fits in a Ten Hag system. And we've seen everything Ten Hag has done this summer has been very, very strict. You know, he's made them get rid of their personal chefs. He's reinstituted fines for being late for training. It's it's very much he's the boss. And I think Rangnick maybe was was just too nice for for for, for that role, mm. and so you know never got anywhere near implementing his vision of football. Um, that vision is not a dissimilar vision to Ten Hag's, but I think Ten Hag's got that that steel to to really implement it. Uh, and then for Ronaldo to wander into that, and you have know, the stories you hear from last season of. Ronaldo in training and, and sort of objecting to pressing drills and saying, oh, no, training has to be fun and, and sort of undermining, well, Rangnick and also Harry Maguire, which maybe is one of the reasons Maguire had such a poor season last season. Yeah, yeah I just don't know why he'd want him anywhere near mm. the, the, the dressing room. So, I, yeah, I, I think at some point, some deal will be done so that you can leave, whether that's to go to, to the US or to, to sporting yeah. or, or, or to wherever. Um, and as a brief tangent, uh, the undermining of Maguire, what shape did that take? Well, he, he was desperate for captaincy. Yeah. And, and um, the captaincy remained with Maguire, but Ronaldo kept agitating for it. Uh, so I think that that's uh, furthered the, the the sense of insecurity Maguire felt. I, I, think, I think Maguire, I think it's easy to look at Maguire and think, oh, he's a big bloke with a massive head. Uh, he's, you know, he's, he's from Yorkshire. He must be tough. I think he's a little bit more uh, vulnerable yeah. than perhaps we we realise. And you you remember that period immediately after the court case in Greece, which and you know, that appeal still hasn't been resolved. That's still all dragging on. Yeah. But that period immediately after the court case, yeah, his form was disastrous. Because and I think he is somebody who's very affected by that. And I think the thing that really the hammer blow from last season was he was he he had that um, ankle injury was rushed back for that away game at Leicester. And um, United had just got back into the game and De Gea gave him a slightly short pass. And because of the ankle, he couldn't push off to react yes, to it. Yes. The ball got nicked off him. Leicester then go on to win 4-2. And every sort of blaming Maguire. And it's sort of, well, yeah, but if he hadn't been rushed back, then, 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 then maybe that wouldn't have happened. And I, I think that was where his form really collapsed. So... Yeah, I, I, I think there's every reason to think Maguire will be better this season. Uh, I think and, the fact they've and, got the three centre-backs means they can play with a back three. But yeah. they haven't got a right-back either. Yeah, they desperately need a new right-back. And there doesn't seem any movement on that. And they've obviously pinned all the hopes on De Jong in the centre midfield. And, and, and uh, yeah, that, that's drag. Again, it, it's all the all the non-coach stuff at the club seems to go wrong perpetually. It's, yeah, the, the fact that they haven't, haven't managed to get that. So I know it's difficult because yeah, his deferred wages are a situation that that um, yeah, is is pretty unusual. But at some point, you've got to cut your losses and say, look, sort this out in a week. Say to Barcelona, you've got a week to sort this out. And if you haven't, we're moving on. And you know, if you're a club of any kind of stature, if you're Liverpool, who I think have done their transfer business impeccably, mm. you'll have a second choice like this. You'll know who your backup option is. Um, and you sort of you can already see what's going to happen, which which is that deal doesn't get done. He ends up going say to Chelsea, and he clearly, I think, would favour move to London over Manchester. 
And United end up sort of a week before the transfer deadline, scrabbling around and end up signing Yuri Tielemans from Leicester for too much money mm. because Leicester somehow have decided to, to just give up this summer. That all feels entirely likely and, and in keeping with much of the last um, decade. So say Ronaldo, and by the way, what a what a gracious teammate to really help out Harry Maguire when he's booed by the national <laughs> team in the, in the national stadium or the national team fans in the stadium. I mean, uh, uh, what, what a charming way to, to dig a friend out there. Uh, say Ronaldo does go, again, which looks inevitable given everything Ten Hag has done in his career. Uh, United have no one up front that they can rely on. Yeah, well, that's the other position where they're desperately short. That, um, yeah, there's obviously the Mason Greenwood situation, which you can't really blame the club for, but they've had a year to sort that out. Rashford's form last season was was dreadful. You hope that he'll return, but but who knows? Uh, you know, all of Cavani's injury problems last season, so you end up relying on Anthony Martial, which, yeah, he has not been a consistent performer at all. He had a decent pre-season, but, but you, you wouldn't want him to be a main centre-forward going into the new season. Uh, I guess you hope Jaden Sancho playing in a system more akin to that at Dortmund where he did thrive, that, that he'll be, yeah, he'll feel more comfortable than he did under a slightly looser system last season and he maybe can kick on. But it, yeah, they, they, they don't have an obvious central attacking presence. Mm. So really, all hope around uh, Manchester United doing something this year is that Ten Hag is getting more from the sum of the parts than has been the case over the last number of years. Uh, what is your read on Ten Hag? Have you been impressed with uh, what you saw from him at Ajax, how translatable is that? And, and, and beyond the I'm in charge, here are the rules, which are always leaked to the papers. Uh, what, what have you made of United in pre-season? Yeah, I mean, it's it's so difficult to tell because you know he, he, did, he did brilliantly at Ajax, but that's the Eredivisie. Can you do it anywhere else? Mm. And it, it's not even like he, you know, he's gone to, to Germany or, or Belgium or, or anywhere else to, to sort of get more experience. And the situation in, in the Dutch league is clear that Ajax are one of, well, at the minute, two outstanding teams. Uh, it's, it's a very different world to, to the world of English football. Um, I, I think everything you've seen of him this summer, he's, he's done the right things. He's imposed himself in a way that Rangnick didn't. I think he probably needs to do that. I think there's a sense that squatted had uh, been a bit too indulged and probably you know, needs the the iron fist, uh, but yeah, that's that's the kind of thing that in two weeks can can look very different. Yeah, that, yeah who is this Martinet who doesn't have a clue? Yeah, who's uh, ostracised all his players? Uh, he won't let us have our chefs, Jonathan. We can't even have our chefs. Do you know what I mean? They, they, they'll be the exact um, leaked by players to media in two weeks when they lose their first two games. Yeah, and, and yeah, that, that's something that uh, I'd love to be more. I'd love to know more of the logic behind that. I, I assume it's almost a symbolic thing of I'm in charge. Yeah. And you can't you, you can't have multiple different nutritionists. But I would have thought individual players require individual nu- nutrition plans, and I would have thought the the more sensible thing is for. For, for the clubs to work with the private chefs because uh, I mean, the, the players can't be eating every meal at the club surely well I, I, I got the impression it's like meals on wheels we're preparing your meals and they're coming to well, your house yeah, and, but, yeah, uh, I don't know, you know this, this is a group where they still in 2013 remember the shock of Moisey cancelling the oven chips you know yeah I mean, <laughs> uh, but also yeah, the food you get delivered you know we've all had takeaway and we all know that certain food stuff lend themselves to takeaways and anything you want crispy doesn't so it's limiting what they can eat. I I, I don't know. I, I just yeah, I mean, no, may, I know. maybe maybe it is just sort of centralizing the power and saying, look, I, I, yeah, I, I am your one true god. Obey me. <laughs> yeah. 
and and you know you can't have this man you know cooking your yeah your your, your, your pre-match pasta it has to be us but uh I, I would have thought there was a a sort of compromised position there but yeah if it works everybody will go oh yeah what, what a genius he's been if it, yeah. if it fails everybody will say you know how, how ludicrous to, to 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 ban the players doing that yeah for sure so who knows where Manchester United fall uh, Spurs and Arsenal have reasons to feel excited about a new season uh, the progress has been steady under both Conte and Arteta Arsenal are the highest spenders this summer Zinchenko Jesus Fabio Vieira amongst their signings and then Conte uh, it really does seem is being uh, backed to uh, some degree or other. I'm sure Spurs fans will argue they could spend more money, but they have given him money to spend. And is uh, his January signings? I mean, if he if he repeats the trick with these summer signings, then they will be a force. Oh yeah, I mean they they've brought in what six players on permanent deals, uh, plus uh, Longley on loan. Uh, they seem to have been very targeted in who they, they, they they've gone after. Uh, so yeah, Richarlison whose pressing stats last season were, were incredible. Uh, plus, oh, was it uh, 10 goals and five assists in a, you know, in a poor Everton team? So mm. yeah, he's clearly a, you know, a very high-class player who, who, who should fit the, the Conte system. And that, that relieves the pressure on, on Kane and Son and, and, and Kulisevsky to a lesser extent, because he can play across that front three. Um, so, yeah, and, and bringing in... Two different options at a wing back. I think that's an area that where there's a you know a, a huge level of attrition. Uh, so they, you know, they've now got six wing backs in the squad, which is probably too many. But um, it, yeah, given how much effort they have to put in, yeah, you know, I, I, I think that's you'd probably rather have more there than less. Mm. Uh, they haven't really had a, a commanding midfielder for, for for quite a while. Springing Basuma. You look at Basuma and Bentancur and you think, yeah, that's a really good pairing. Both of them pretty tough. Both of them can put their foot in. Both of them good passes of the ball. Uh, I mean, I've seen a lot of Tottenham fans on, on social media seem pretty frustrated that Spurs haven't made any effort to get James Madison in, uh, given that Leicester yeah, seems to want to sell him. Mm. Uh, but to be honest, I don't really see where he fits in that team. If you're playing a 3-4-3, three, three, then... Yeah, you, you, your two central midfielders need to be real grafters who, who ideally can also pass, which is what they've got in Basuma and Bentancur. Whereas Madison, I guess, would end up probably stuck out on the left, which I'm not sure that's necessarily yeah you know, the best place for him. And you've got Son and Richarlison can can play there anyway. So, um, yeah, they, 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 I think they've been pretty smart in who they've gone after. Even bringing Fraser, Fraser Forster as a as a backup keeper, I think there's been times when when Lloris has, has looked slightly suspect, I think it's not a bad thing at all to have a, yeah. um, you know, an experienced uh, alternative. I mean, Forster's, what, 30, 34 now? Yeah. Um, but after after a bit of a lull, played pretty well at times to start last season. So, yeah, I, I th- think all of that makes sense. Arsenal did uh, lose two games late on last year to hand over fourth spot to Spurs. They still did finish 11 points ahead of Manchester United, who were in... Uh, sixth. I mentioned the signings that they've made. Uh, so, is is this is your sense? Uh, Chelsea concerns, which we touched on, but uh, Spurs and Arsenal, and really, it's it it will be top four from those five. Um. Well, no, I'd, I'd say that top six breaks into three three bands. So I'd say the City and Liverpool. Yeah. I'd say there's Chelsea and Tottenham. There's Arsenal, Manchester United. Yeah. Of course, anybody can step up or step down from one band to the next, but I, I could just about imagine a world in which Chelsea 
or Tottenham win the league this season. I mean, I think it'd be a surprise, but I can imagine how it could happen. Yeah. I'd be absolutely stunned if Arsenal and Manchester United were to do that. So I, I think there, there are still the three bands. And I think the thing with Arsenal... I mean, they, and, they, and you have Arsenal very much more in the Manchester United band than uh, keeping pace with Spurs. Yeah, I mean, I think that squad-wise are probably better than Manchester United. I think they, they should be like, thinking fifth is a sort of... Uh, yeah, is their par, whereas United's probably sixth is their par. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, they, they, yeah, they, 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 they could finish fourth. Of course they could. But I think the, the, the thing with Arsenal last season was they were so weirdly moody that they 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 had I think four separate runs where they won one of four or five games, uh, and when they get in these little slumps, they 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 seem to find it quite difficult to get out. And then I think they had four runs as well where they won four or more games in a row. Now partly has to do with the calendar, partly has to do with injuries. Uh, I think they 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 still have that problem that particularly away against good teams, they they tend not to get results. So I think in the ten games against the other members of the of the top six last season, they they, they won three and lost seven. Now that, that's not a million miles from being being fine. You, know, you only have to win five, and you think well, that's a, that's a brilliant record against the top six. But um, they, they, I think they are a team that when they get down on themselves, they 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 can be very beatable. And maybe that's partly to do with the youth of the side as well. But I think. The, the the issue there is is almost mentality more than anything else, mm. and that's where I think bringing in the likes of Jesus and Sinchenko, you've got experience of um, being in title races and and, and being in, you know in in, in quite grueling campaigns where you have to keep producing. That 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 should be beneficial to them. I, I think Sinchenko especially is a, is a fascinating signing because mm. uh, I think he ended up being slightly marginalised at City that, that when he did play tend to be at left back but we've seen him for Ukraine playing either back of midfield and left of midfield and I, I think there is a lot of creativity there that maybe the way City played didn't didn't quite tap into. Jonathan just a very last one then we, you could do 20 minutes half an hour on Newcastle all on their own just one question on Newcastle because uh, this is going to be a very intriguing uh, season in many ways so uh, Live Golf is going splendidly well they're uh, throwing hundreds of millions at various players. Cam Smith set to sign and Matsuyama set to sign. Uh, not as many players signing for Newcastle. Uh, what's your read on what's going on at Newcastle this summer? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I thought, yeah, I thought they signed very sensibly in in January. I thought they'd have made a lot more signings now. I mean, yeah, they they brought in Nick Pope, so yeah, probably an improvement of what they've had in goal. But I don't think that was ever a, a sort of urgent. I don't think there's any urgent need to to to, to bring in another keeper. They firmed up with Matt Target's loan signing. Sven Botman, I think, is a, is a decent signing. Um, but I, you know, I, I think when that takeover happened, if you'd said to Newcastle fans, "Yeah, next summer, the biggest name you'll bring in, the most exciting player you'll bring in, is Sven Botman," <laughs> I think they'd have been pretty disappointed in that. <laughs> Uh, it's obviously an improvement on 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 what was there before, on what Mike Ashley would have would have brought in, and I, I think they'll probably sign two or three more before the end of the window. But it's it's not the mega riches that 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 we expected. Now, are they keeping their powder dry? Are they waiting to see how the season goes and looking to buy in January again? Are they looking to get cheaper deals near the end of the window when clubs are keener to sell? Um, have they have you know have the owners decided no actually the future is is golf and we want to give all our money to Dustin Johnson rather than to Neymar or whoever I I, I don't know um, 
but but yeah, it's it's been a, a strangely quiet summer for Newcastle, and I, I think one of the that first month of the season, the one of the really intriguing games is is that game. Uh, I think it's the last Sunday in August when when Newcastle play City, and it'd be fascinating to see who Newcastle have in by then and 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 how competitive they are against City in in, in that game. Mm, for sure. Uh, listen, it all begins again. It's going to be such an interesting season. Not a single Nile Quinn or Sunderland reference in part two of that conversation. <laughs> Just to, to, it was. A, it was I, a, I reined myself in. I thought I began very self-conscious about it. <laughs> no, it's a, it a worthy draw. Um, two brothers, the life and times of Bobby and Jackie Charlton, which we'll be chatting to you about very shortly, is available certainly to pre-order now. What's the actual release date, or does it vary country to country? You're global, I presume, at this stage. The I mean, the official release date is August 11th. Right. I mean, they always seem to be available slightly before that. Um, and I honestly, I don't know what the difference between UK and Ireland uh, is, you know, in terms of, of when it's released. I would assume it's the same because uh, you, you know, when you sell it, you sell it as UK and Ireland rights. Um, so yeah, it's it's looking at their their lives, their relationship, uh, but also trying to place them in a in a social and political context, um, which which I think is is yeah, because yeah, they they. They, I think they're weirdly underappreciated in England. Right. Uh, there's only ever been two pairs of brothers have won the World Cup together. Uh, so the Valters for, for West Germany in 1954 and, and them. And, and uh, the whole the whole thing of their relationship, relationship with the mother, I think is fascinating. The the coming from that very tight-knit mining community in Ashington um, and, and, and how that shaped them and... and uh, both of them had a you know a slightly troublesome relationship with with home. I mean, Jack far less, but but definitely early on, he he felt very very uneasy about the prospect of going away and possibly having to come back as a failure. And Bobby barely went back for the last sort of twenty or thirty years of his life. Um, and I, you know, and that that in a sense is the the tragedy of of Northeast England that that so many of us are exiles because uh, yeah, economic life is is dwindling there. Mm. Sold. Well, listen, I'm look, really looking forward to reading it and chatting to you about it in uh, due course. But for the time being, Jonathan Wilson, much appreciated. Great to have you on. Enjoy the Premier League season ahead, Jonathan. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you very much. Football on Off the Ball. With Sky. Get all the football you love in one place across Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports.